welcome back to a new year, year six of Behind the Lens. And welcome to a new decade. It's now 2020. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with all the movers and shakers and TV and filmmakers, uh, directors, writers, production designers, sound editors, sound engineers, um, VFX, uh, special effects people, composers, costumers, and of course, on air, in front of the camera talent. We talk to them all, as you've heard over the past years. Um, but it's now a new year, a new decade, and who knows what it's going to bring. One thing it, it did bring was the Golden Globes last night the first, that kicks off the award season. And this year, it's an abbreviated award season uh, due to NBC juggling scheduling because of the Tokyo Summer Olympics. Um, next year, we go back to a longer awards uh, it'll be a, back to the regular almost two-month award period as opposed to a cramped one-month uh, period, which actually comes down to less than that, uh, given that Oscar nomination ballots have to be turned in by tomorrow. Oscars are February 9th. Uh, so the ballots come get turned in by tomorrow, the 13th. Next Monday, uh, we'll be talking about Oscar nominations which come out bright and early Monday morning, uh, which basically only gives two and a half weeks for last push Oscar Oscar campaigns for nominees. So it's going to be a madhouse in uh, the awards circuit over the next month. But before we get to the madhouse that was the Golden Globes last night, uh, Great show for you today to kick off the new year. I'm very excited. We have actor-turned-writer-director Tammy Minoff joining us to talk about her new film, her directorial feature debut, Limerins. Um, I'm familiar with Tammy's work as an actor. Uh, I've previously previously seen her in I'm Not a Hipster from Destin Daniel uh, Crichton. Uh, and that film was done the year before he brought a short-term 12, which, of course, Scott, you know, put Brie Larson on everybody's map. Uh, she also was in Detention, Joseph Kahn's film. Not for everybody, but it's a kick in the ass. Um, but now she's turned writer-director for a rom-com of a new ilk. Um, and I can't wait to talk to her about the film. It It's got charm it's fun it's light it's bright her use of color in the film is fascinating and really helps tell the story so I can't wait for Tammy uh to join us she'll be joining us at the midpoint of the show uh and before then you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Chin and Yay Chukwu the writer director of Clemency which is a film we have never seen before uh, we're going to get into that in a minute. But first, Golden Globes. If you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream right now, you will see our little tablescape. And front and center are winners of last night's Golden Globes. You've heard me tout this 
all year long. Taryn Edgerton, Edgerton, Taryn Edgerton, Taryn Edgerton. And Taryn won, picked up the best actor. Uh, musical and comedy for his portrayal of Elton John in Rocket Man. Again, from the moment I saw the film, I said, hand her the Oscar now. She's on her way. One more step down the yellow brick road to Oscar gold. Uh, Renee Zellweger picked up the best actress in a drama for her portrayal of the legendary Judy Garland in Judy. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix picked up an Oscar for Joker. Um, I think a lot of people were surprised about that, um, that he came through and picked that up. But there he is. Um, Brad Pitt, everybody had their fingers crossed. Everybody has been hoping. It is truly one of the best performances of Brad Pitt's career. Definitely the best thing we've seen from him in almost 20 years. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Best supporting actor in any motion picture. And as he so eloquently talked last night, you know, he was in a category with Tom Hanks. Anthony Hopkins, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. Um, And there's one thing about Brad is that he never takes anything for granted and he is always humbled by the company which he keeps and in which he finds himself. Um, So when he says ultimate respect being with those gentlemen, he truly means it. One of the big surprises tonight, Netflix, 17... Golden Globe nominations, they only picked up one one award. That was for Laura Dern for Marriage Story for Best Supporting uh, Best Actress in a Supporting Role in Any Motion Picture. Um, won a big surprise to so many, Missing Link, the stop motion gem from Leica Studios. Uh, I am beyond thrilled. That Travis Knight, um, who is the f- head of uh, Leica, stop motion films that they've been doing for years. It takes years to do these films. The detail is so meticulous. Uh, look at the box trolls. Look at Paran- uh, Paranorman. Look at Coraline. These films are exquisite. They are truly pieces of art. Um, and this year, Missing Link. And the Hollywood Foreign Press took notice of that. Uh, I think people are still kind of shell-shocked that Disney did not win for Frozen 2 or or Toy Story 4, which is so beloved. Um, I personally would have gone with How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Um, Could still see that pop up uh, in Oscar nominations, but I am personally so excited for Travis Knight and Leica with their missing link pickup. Uh, And, of course, breaking all barriers last night, Aquafina wins Best Actress in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy for her performance in The Farewell, first Asian-American, first Asian actress to pick up a globe. Um, Best Screenplay, Quentin Tarantino, Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino. And what thrilled me, uh, anybody that listened to the show um, 
in December and who is and who follows me on social media or reads my reviews and interviews. Um, 1917, hands down, best picture of the year. This is an amazing, amazing piece of history that Sam Mendes has brought to life. Sam Mendes picks up best director for a motion picture for 1917 and 1917 walked away as the best motion picture drama. This sets up a very interesting dynamic for Oscar nominations. Um, Typically, the Globes might be a little prescient as to what we might see with Oscar. Uh, We'll find out next Monday morning uh, when Oscar nominations are announced. Um, A lot of chatter about Jojo Rabbit not picking anything up. that is surprising, but in one of the cutest moments of the Golden Globes last evening was Taryn Edgerton giving a huge shout out to the incredible young actor Roman Griffin Davis, who plays Jojo. Um, and Roman, I am in love with Roman. He is the sweetest kid around, um, and he is so good in the film. If you haven't seen it, see it. I fully expect um, JoJo to pick up some Oscar nominations on Monday morning, uh, including, um, I am hoping, maybe, category is so tight this year, cinematography. Um, Mihai uh, um, Malamari, uh, beautiful job. Production design is also exquisite in that. I would not be surprised to see... Jojo pick up noms for that as well as for possibly Taika Waititi as writer, director, or even a best supporting nod. But I think our best supporting Oscar uh, nominations are going to fall in line with the Golden Globes. Um, Big, big, big snub. Irishman. Got nothing. A lot of nominations. Um, Six nominations or five. They had five nominations, Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, and two Supporting Actor nods. Got nothing. Um, In all honesty, it's a good film. It's an exceedingly long film. Um, But also, it's nothing we hadn't really seen before. Um, The other films that it was going up against, we were refreshing. They were they were new. It was something we hadn't seen. 1917 delving that deeply into World War 1 from the perspective of a one long tracking shot thanks to the incredible Roger Deakins as cinematographer. That's inventive. It's creative. It's impactful. The Two Popes, which was also nominated for best motion picture drama at the Globes, That's an amazing true life story of these two men, um, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, and their internal, this two-handed story. It's not something that that you see. The Irishman, it's a world we know, it's a world we've seen. And in many respects, I think it felt somewhat rehashed from what we've seen from from Marty Scorsese before. Um, So I think that might have impacted the HFP, HFPA voting. So, but we'll find out what happens with Oscar. But congratulations to all of the Golden Globe winners. And of course, I would be remiss not to mention 
Elton John and Bernie Taupin won Best Original Song for Rocket Man. It is the first award in 52 years that the two of them have jointly won, uh, which makes it all a sweeter. Uh, so congratulations to all the Golden Globe winners. And of course, Tom Hanks, the speech of the night in my book. He gave us all great life lessons. Show up on time, know the text, have a head full of ideas. And that applies to everything. Um, and of course, Ricky Gervais, a lot, Ricky Gervais, either you love him or you hate him. And I've got to tell you, I thought his opening monologue, okay, with the exception of the off-color joke about Judy Dench and cats, um, he was hilarious. He skewered Hollywood. Um, no holds barred. I love that he doesn't care. And he called, and the jokes are based on the truth that is out there and what people see. And what is in the uh, the sociopolitical zeitgeist? Um, I thought he was hilarious, but for the one joke, um, and he did. The show did move along. It wasn't uh, it wasn't drudgery watching it. Uh, and we won't get into the fashion, other than to say, J Lo looked like she was dressed in leftover Christmas wrapping paper. So, on that cheery note, as Pam's sitting in the booth laughing at me. Um, let's move on to a very serious, serious film, Clemency. Clemency, and this is a story we have not seen before. Uh, this is the story told them pr from the perspective of a warden on death row, uh, a warden at a death row prison. Um, this is not, we've seen in legal thrillers, legal dramas. We've seen stories from judges' perspectives, convicts' perspectives, witnesses' perspectives, attorneys' perspectives, judges' perspectives. But we have never seen inside the mind of a warden, especially a warden of a prison that is a death row prison. Alfre Woodard stars as Warden Bernadine Williams, it is an incredible performance. It is compelling. You are, you are so drawn to her. It's a very quiet performance. It is a very deliberate performance. And it's the connection, it's the unspoken, the tacit connection she makes with her prisoners. And in this case, particularly one, Anthony Woods, played by Aldous Hodge, who brings such quiet strength to this role. Um, he was previously in Hidden Figures, earlier this year in Brian Banks. He's amazing in Brian Banks in particular, but here, and to watch the dance, the dance of quiet between he uh, be, between Aldous and Alfrey and their characters is amazing. But in order to tell a story like this, you really have to have inside knowledge. As many of you know, I concurrently spend almost 30 years in law, in addition to my work as a producer and as a film critic. Um, 
you it, it takes a certain discipline, it takes a certain dynamic, and you have to understand the ins and outs when you are crafting a film like this. This is one of the things that makes Todd Haynes's Dark Waters so impressive is that, you know, they had Rob Lowe, the he worked with them, the attorney handling the decades of, of DuPont litigation, worked with them, turned over all the files, so all the materials were there. Here, besides getting into the mindset of someone, this is the mindset of a warden policing death row inmates. Um, and I, I just have to say, Chinye Chukwu is amazing. She actually volunteered. She volunteered. Um, doing work, doing volunteer work on clemency cases and then teaching in women's prisons. Um, it was all inspired after a, an execution that took place in Georgia. So she got an inside look at this world, and that inspired her to want to tell a story, a very specific story. And then she dug even deeper. Uh, and delivers a remarkable film. Uh, every lawyer out there should see this film. Every family member with someone in prison should see this film. On many on many levels, it's very enlightening, um, but it, it and very eye opening. But take a listen to my exclusive inter- interview with Chinwei Chukwu talking about her inspiration for clemency, how she approached this, and how she worked with Eric Branco, her cinematographer, in developing the visual tonal bandwidth that really solidifies the emotion and gravitas of the film. So I was very intrigued with the whole concept of your film. But then to see the approach you took we have never seen this perspective told, <laughs> yeah. ever. We've seen jurors' perspectives. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, convicts' perspectives. We've seen witnesses' perspectives. We've seen attorney perspectives. We've seen judges. We've never seen inside the mind of the warden. Yeah. And this is one of the most brilliant character studies. Oh, thank you that I have ever seen. Thank you. Yeah, it will uh, What you have done here is just astounding. Thank you. From your character construct, and not just Alfrey's character of the warden, but Aldous mm-hmm. as Anthony Woods. Yeah. And the beautiful job you do with Richard Schiff's character, Marty. Mm. That is the humanity yeah. of your film. It comes through in him mm. that will resonate with people whether you're pro or against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. You left no stone unturned here. Thank you. Yeah, I know you were moved to tell this story after the execution in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised over the years more filmmakers have not been moved to tell similar stories. Mm after executions, of which there have been plenty. Mm -hmm. 
But what I find most intriguing here, it's one thing to want to tell this story from the warden's perspective, but it's another to have a female warden mm-hmm. in a male prison mm-hmm. and a young black man. This is not an old person mm-hmm. sitting there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to all these little things that make this pop even more. <laughs> I, it's, I like you. <laughs> it's like fun. It's, it's like, you're always like, we got a female warden. We have a young, good-looking black man. Very good-looking man. Um, and it's like, okay. And an all-male prison, it's like, okay, this is... And then we find out she's married, has a loving mm-hmm. husband. Who's out? Who feels so badly that he can't reach her, mm-hmm. can't connect? So it's not like it, it, you know. So often people have the perception with you know female correction officers that they're hard, they're cold, mm-hmm. that there's no femininity, they have no mm-hmm. love. It's we get none of that. Yeah, you buck everything here. <laughs> yeah. What made you do that? What took you down this specific construct? Well, I, most of the wardens that I came and interact, that I interacted with in Ohio when I moved there to volunteer on clemency cases and to teach in the women's prison um, were black women. And um, the warden, the former warden of San Quentin, which has the largest death row in the country, um, she's, a, she's a white woman who, for, who's a, for like over 20 years she was a warden there. And so, and she was actually telling me that there's like a female warden's community as well. So it didn't seem odd to me um, for the warden to be a woman. And as far as her being a black woman, I, I, I think I just kind of wrote in my likeness as a black woman, you know. And I really, I knew that this was going to be an intense human character study. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to show a black woman as a human being, mm-hmm. you know, and to have a, be at the center of a narrative that's not solely defined by her race and gender or the emotional needs of a man. Um, and and that's complicated as hell. Well, you hit all the complications in here, <laughs> and the fact that it's a female, it's a female warden for a male prison. Yeah. That is so striking. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think anybody realizes that there are female. Yes, there are female wardens, but there are male prisons. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the rub right mm-hmm. there. That's the contradiction. Yep. Yeah. And imagine just like how much how much even more cut off you have to be to maintain your authority and your like your the wall up that you have, you know, once you're in that in that environment. But see something and I'm glad you mentioned that because something that you do visually that you and your cinematographer Eric do, you have quite a number of scenes where we have the warden walking down the hallway. Yeah. We have the prisoners Here's the little yellow mm-hmm. line. Here they are. She's very, walking very close to yeah. that yellow line. She is not distancing herself. Yeah. She's connecting with them until we get to the ultimate after Woods mm-hmm. in the final act. Mm-hmm. And she's now so far away from that line. Mm-hmm. And that I found so compelling. Oh, wow that you would do that because that was clearly a visual design. Mm-hmm. 
clearly to helping tell her story. Yeah. Because as, as removed as she seems from everybody, she's more connected and closer yeah. to them than anything in her life. Yeah, exactly. You know, how did you go about structuring this within the story to develop this? Because mm-hmm. you've got to walk, you're walking a fine line. Because you didn't want too much of a, of a connection to be made, an outward connection. All of this had to be internalized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it, so, I mean, I, from, even before I started writing the script, Bernadine's emotional arc was very clear to me. Um, and I think that, but it was, it was a challenge writing to, in terms of the writing, to figure out how to make her an actively internal character if that makes sense very much and so so, um and also with anthony as well and so if we take the scene where she's telling him about protocol and how he's supposed to be executed he doesn't say a word but he is actively trying not to say anything and actively holding so much in and that's that it's it's that kind of stuff that i would write in Mm -hmm. um and on the script and really try to work with each actor to bring out um i i think that um Bernadine's arc was very clear to me. It took it took a, a several revisions to figure out how to get Bernadine and Anthony's parallels just right, mm-hmm. so they get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. They really are two sides of a coin. Yeah, exactly. They are. Is this like they are Warden Anthony? They yeah. are the same. They are. Yeah, they are. But it it did take some time in terms of narrative, in terms of the structure of the narrative. Um, to really find that, to get the parallels together mm-hmm. and to make it so focused. And with each revision, I cut out some tertiary <laughs> characters and moments. And I was like, no, this is this is about them. And I didn't want anything flashy. I didn't want, we don't need to go see the, how, how Marty fights for him. We, don't, we need right. to stay in here. And so um, with each revision, I did that more and more. And with each edit, I, I definitely, we just mm-hmm. whittled it to just them. Mm-hmm. Now, while you were working on your script revisions and whittling it down, mm-hmm. you know, were you also working on your visual construct and envisioning that at the same time? Not really. Like, I, I think, I mean, once we got to, like, shooting drafts and, you know, the final tweaks, I was thinking a little bit about it. But genuinely with the writing there were only maybe two or three moments where I'm like I know this is exactly how this is going to look but I re- I view writing as its own separate craft than directing mm-hmm. and I really am thinking what will be the best story I love that you do that so many writer directors it's like they're doing their visuals while they're doing yeah. the, the writing but I love that you focused on the story. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's about the story. I mean, the script is, if you have a strong story, then that you have a strong foundation to mm-hmm. direct. <laughs> when did you and Eric start looking at coming up with your visual tonal bandwidth here? So, because this is, it you. is austere. It's, you've got elegant, there's elegance in the camera movement. You're adding a grace and respect to the overall tone of this film with a very somber and actually controversial point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I told Eric about Clemency when we were shooting my last short film, Long Walk, like five years ago or something like that. And I, it was just like a, it was just a concept, you know, I was telling him. And I, soon after we wrapped a Long Walk, my short film, I gave him a first draft of Clemency. And he was like, I'm in. And he was already <laughs> seen, like the way Eric works. I mean, his, he has like, a, he, has a, he has images, like the a vault 
of tons of images and references. And so he started like sending me things. He's like, oh, we could do this. We could do this. Years ago. Now we didn't stick to a lot of that stuff. But um, and, or they evolved over the years, but we've been talking about it for a while. But then it, we really didn't figure out the visual language until we officially went into pre-production. And it was great. It, it was we have such respect for each other as human beings and we actually are friends. And so we were able to I mean, in the middle of the night, we'll just like send, you know, hey, what about this? What about this? And he has us come up with um, rules. Under no circumstance will we do X, Y, Z. So we only limited ourselves to just a few scenes where we shot handheld. Everything else ha- could not be handheld to, to really f- emphasize the rigidity and mm. res- the constraint of the space. And no matter how, we shot this woman 17 days. Okay. So you can imagine the moments when we're like, damn it, let's just quickly, you know. But Eric and I, nope. Nope, we can't, can't, we gotta stick to the rules. Stick to the rules, the visual rules. Um, we were very clear about the way I like to work is in, in uh, identify visual motifs. And so um, Eric and I come up with visual motifs that would be recur- that that will be associated with certain characters and um, turning points in their emotional arcs, and we stick to it. Um, and then we talk about light progression um, as well. And so those are kind of the first things that Eric and I get on the same page. Well, about. and your light progression. And that is an excerpt. It's about half of my exclusive interview with Chinone Chukwu talking about clemency. The rest of the interview will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And the full audio will be up on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, And of course, as a reminder, you can find movie reviews, interviews, trailers, and so much more 24-7 24-7 on BehindTheLensOnline.net, as well as in print and online outlets in the U.S. and abroad. And I do want to give a big shout-out to a quarterly print outlet uh, that I am now writing for, the pen name. You can pick it up in the Los Angeles area. Um, so big shout-out to Charlie and to John on bringing me on board um, with some great interview content. Uh, for their publication. So, but right now we're going to shift gears again. If, if you're getting the clue here, we're, we're dealing with female directors today. And right now I'm going to bring on, I'm bringing on a very talented female director who I have watched as an actress and now get to see her skills as a writer, director, and actor wearing all these hats. Tammy Minoff. Hi, Tammy. Hi there. How's it going? Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show, kicking off the new year here. Likewise. Excited to be here. I I was excited the minute I found out about the film. Um, Great. Wow. And and I've seen you, your work acting before, um, and you've worked with some uh, some indie filmmakers that I adore. Joseph Kahn, Destin Daniel Creighton, um, Yes. And, you know, we all know, as I said at the top of the show today, we all know where, where Creighton went, short-term 12. He has Just Mercy coming out right now. Um, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible that you were an actress in his film, and now you're a director with a film out at the same time as his film. I I, I know. He, he was a big guy. Uh, he was such an influence in me wanting to direct. Well, I have to tell you, I, uh, sometimes I have great trepidation with actors who decide they want to direct. Um, 
knowing your roots and having worked with these two gentlemen before, um, both who think outside the box, but both who know how to tell stories in with different points of view. Um, it's one of the things that excited me to see what you were, what you would be doing with a limerence, uh, and what you have delivered. It's light. It's bright. It's beautiful to look at. The music is fabulous and the story and the character of Rosemary is fun. Uh, it's Thank you. the perfect film for people to see at the beginning of a new year and a new decade. I agree. What a great way to start this new decade. And especially since they everybody can see this on digital and uh, what VOD come tomorrow. I know. I can't believe it's coming out tomorrow. <laughs> Talk to it's me. Been it's been a wild ride. It's been a while because you shot this back in 2017 or, or around there, didn't you? Yes, we did, and we went to some film festivals. We won Best Feature at Soho Film Festival, and then our agents were hard at work uh, finding us distribution, and we were so thrilled when uh, Gravitas became our partner in this and, and is distributing this movie. You know, I think people don't realize what goes into getting an independent film out there, and, and it's, uh, it takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of work and perseverance, and we're just... We're beyond excited that we're, we're going to have our release tomorrow. And this is one of the things I love about Gravitas. And if I were to look at your film at a fest level and you had, and you had no distributors, I would be telling you, try Gravitas because this is in their wheelhouse. Yeah. And this is the kind of film yeah. that they really do a good job with um, yeah. getting it out there. Sure. So I'm not surprised that they decided to pick this up. Um, yeah, yeah, they've been terrific. So what what made you decide to jump from acting into writing and directing? Was it a shortage of parts? Was it things that didn't interest <laughs> you? You know, everybody has their reasons for making this leap. Yeah, it was pretty accidental on both accounts, <laughs> as a lot of things in my life tend to be. And then once I got there, I realized, oh... I've been preparing for this my entire life and career. Um, but I started writing um, as part of a class. I was working with an actor named Chris Messina, and mm -hmm. he was the first person to encourage me to write and was very supportive and supportive of this whole movie um, and, and the journey it took to get here. So it started as a play that I, I wrote and I acted in. I did not direct. And during our run on the second performance, Brad Zion, who's my producing partner, he produced Kissing Jessica Stein and Iron Abbey. He was in my audience, um, which he was there to see um, an actress in the play, Kelly Fry. And we met and connected, and he said, I think we should make this a movie, and I think I should produce it. So that was a pretty wild thing to, to happen. Uh, definitely felt like kismet, and that was the beginning of um, my working relationship with Brad, which has been over many years now in the making it's been awesome and, <laughs> and we really really loved working together and are going to continue to work together in the future which is exciting and so that's how I started writing I was adapting the screenplay and as we were doing that it kind of became clear that I as we were meeting with other directors but it became clear that I should direct this 
Brad encouraged it. My husband encouraged it. Um, Chris Messino, the uh, Chris, was, <laughs> who was reading early drafts, said, "I think you should direct it." You know, and then once I started doing it, I thought, "Oh my gosh, I love this. This is what I really want to be doing." Well, and and how difficult was it? adapting it from stage to screen. I know I've spoken with a lot of indie directors over the past four months or so that were doing it in reverse. They had done a film, but it was perfectly suited to take to the stage. So they were doing that adaptation. Here, you've got it on the stage, and now you've got to expand it for for film. What kind of challenges did that present? For sure. Um... We the, So the play was set in New York, not in L.A., so that was a big change. And one of my goals was to really make sure it didn't feel like a play that was being, you know, shot. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel big and cinematic, and um, so it became its own thing. Uh, you know, it took a year and a half of writing and rewriting and doing readings and all the things that went into it. But, you know, you have to start thinking visually as opposed to, you know, the play. It's really just all about the dialogue. And while there's design parts to it, you know, it's very different than how you, how do you tell the story cinematically? Mm-hmm. And I have to say, as I'm watching the film, this is a love letter to Venice, California. Absolutely. This is a love this is a love letter to Venice. You showed the most beautiful parts from the canals to Washington yeah. Boulevard and you know it, it just to the boardwalk. It is gorgeous. And you know, this is where your work with your cinematographer Chloe Weaver comes in because your visual yeah. tonal bandwidth number one everything is lit lightly. But you keep yes. the the entire tone visually light, and so you get yeah, that we, beach we feeling. Yeah, talk to me about yeah, Chloe's you, Chloe. Chloe's first of all, she's a badass. I mean, she <laughs> is just the best. And we were, you know, we were meeting with other DPs. A couple had fallen through. I finally met with Chloe. We met eight days before we started shooting so we only had eight days together to make this happen wow it was a lot of fast hard work um but she got it you know i remember her coming into that meeting and thinking yeah she sees what i see and and more and this was her first feature as a dp she'd worked a ton before then and so i think we both took a a chance on each other and it paid off. We're, we're actually getting ready to shoot another short film in a couple weeks. And it's just, it really was a, an outstanding collaboration. And I think the director DP partnership is so important. You mm-hmm. see so many directors work with the same DP over and over again. And I, I certainly understand why. Oh yeah. I mean, even, you know, a filmmaker like Dion Taylor, Dion, it didn't take him long to realize he always wants to work with Dante Spinotti. Um, right. You know, always. Um, James Mangold, Papa um, Fadon, Papa Michael, um, they all they work together on so many films, and it, it, you de- you do you develop a shorthand. Um, but Absolutely, it, it's the it's the storytelling sensibility 
that I see with pairings like this that I love because that sensibility, that's another element of the story and it comes through. Whereas if you have some DPs, as I'm sure you know, as an actor, they have a different vision than what the director has. Absolutely, and there can be there can be a clash that happens with that. Yeah, so that the director, if they might, if they're a new director, they might not know or fully understand, and then they get in the editing room, and this is not what they thought that they were getting at all, and it's not the story they want to tell. So how do I salvage this? So I love it when you get a collaboration like this, and you want and it works, and you want to keep doing that. So I want to see many more things from you and Chloe in the future. I'm just putting that out there. Uh, we, we love that. We're, we're <laughs> both uh, excited to keep working together. And, you know, it really was. We did have a shorthand, and she was willing to take some risks with me. You know, there were some things that we did where, you know, I think that it wasn't maybe the traditional way to shoot a scene or cover a scene. And we both really got got into finding those ways, especially, too, when you're, have to work so quickly, you have to be creative with how you shoot because you don't have the time. So mm-hmm. sometimes those uh, obstacles actually <laughs> make things creatively better and not worse. Well, yeah, a big part of the visuals and a big part of the story uh, with the film is the fact that your character of Rosemary, she's a painter, but she's yeah. also she's she's suffering from the female Peter Pan syndrome. Yeah. Uh, and but being a painter and with the type of paintings that rosemary does it opens up a whole world of of color and vibrancy into the film and allows chloe to do some really cool lensing um you know you're shooting through glass you know using hands mixing the vibrancy of blues and purples of paint and thinning yeah. them out and then thickening it up. And she's capturing all of that. And it's so beautiful. And then as the tone of the story and Rosemary's emotional state changes, you get out of those richer, vibrant colors where she's so full of life. Yeah. And you pale out into some paler red, muted reds and oranges and yellows before returning to the vibrancy and I got to say the amount of purple you used I absolutely love it that was our color that that is the color (laughs) that's my color my whole life it's purple so the minute I saw the the minute I saw that I was like okay I'm in this is gonna be good um (laughs) we're 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 into it but yeah I worked with um an artist a painter Monique Van Genderen who created um the painting limerence for the movie. And also I spent time in her studio learning basically that whole world because, you know, I'm not a painter and that I wrote this thing and I said, okay, now we have to make (laughs) it feel real. And, um, you know, and there was the challenge with Chloe and we discussed this a lot. You know, you don't want to watch someone, watching someone painting can be like watching paint dry. (laughs) We were like, how do we make this exciting and dynamic and, rich and help to to have the the art and the paintings mirror what's happening emotionally and in the relationships because I think it, it's something that's unique to this particular story and we really wanted to use it and that's again another example of something you can do in a film and not a play mm-hmm. 
it's just very, very different. And, and Chloe just, again, came up with a lot of creative ways to shoot the painting because, again, it could be, if you don't handle that the right way, it could be pretty boring. Yeah. <laughs> But this and the way that and then, you know, bringing your editing in, because as you are shooting, you know, you have the beautiful montages. You've got the opening with the paint yeah. through glass. You pick that up again at two other points in the film. So it's it, you know, that number one, it, it just feels it adds a whole um, ethereal kind of nature, a creative vibe on top of yeah. the character's creativity. Um, yes. that's really welcoming as you watch this in in the film. But also with the color and with Monique's art, that in and of itself expands. And then you incorporate that into the character of Rosemary. I got to ask, what kind of paint were you using? Because you had it all over you. Oh, yeah. I'm not... I think... Uh... I think Brad affectionately nicknamed me Pig Pen at some point, which was my childhood nickname. I'm not a, not a, I, when I'm in the, in the zone, it get, I get messy. It was, uh, so we used, um, oil paint. Oh my mostly. God. Um, like when you see, there's a moment where I like crack an egg on the palette. That's again, some of those techniques were real life techniques where she was experimenting with different things and putting pigment with mixing it with eggs or, um, Gosh, it's been so long since I've done it. But, um, yeah, we also had an incredible production designer, Davielle Shai, who was also in the art world. And so I was very supported with all of that. But, yes, it was not a, a neat endeavor. <laughs> but now how did this unneat endeavor work for you? Because you're wearing your director's hat at the same time you're wearing yes. your actor's hat. And you're not... a there are a few scenes where you are alone, but for 90% yeah. of the film, you are playing opposite other people. So you have all these hats and you're not neatness. Yep. So, uh, Yeah, exactly. I, you know, it's funny. People are always like, how are you going to do both things? And what is that like? I mean, to be in a scene with another actor and be the director, I, I think while you can maybe think of the the disadvantages of that, I actually found the advantages of it. Uh, one of them is that I can actually direct from inside of a scene. So in other words, if there was something that I wanted to have happen, I could change, alter my own performance to bring the other actor along with me. And it just felt very collaborative, the way we all worked together. It was a friendly family vibe. Um, and developing those relationships beforehand made the directing part, especially the directing part of actors, super easy. Because once we got there, we knew we knew these relationships, we knew these characters. Um, but yeah, my brain works in a unusual way. I mean, I've been acting for a long time, and I'm the kind of person, when I've been on stage or when I'm in a movie that I'm not directing, I can tell you the 10 other things that have happened in the room while in it. I just... I have two brains on, so I think it was a natural transition for me to act and direct at the same time. And that makes you the perfect person to play Rosemary. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> because Rosemary had, like, two, each side of her brain was doing something else. Something else, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, It was crazy. I mean, it was, it was hard, but it was great. Well, you know, and you, you mentioned your cast, and I have to say, your cast is fabulous. Um, Matt Del Negro, who plays Tom, Rosemary's love interest. I've been watching. 
I've been watching Matt for years. Um, yeah. And be it television, be it film, he has a wonderful, a wonderful, you know, pedigree and resume. And he can play almost any character. Um, and he plays. Yeah, he really can. The two of you play so well off of each other. But then you bring in you. Billy Aaron Brown. First time I ever <laughs> saw him was in Jeepers Creepers 2. And, oh, my goodness. I love it. And to now see him playing as Rosemary's BFF, Leo, he looks like a Leo. He acts like a Leo. Yeah. And yeah. he's just as directionless as Rosemary is. So uh, to watch this yeah. almost enabling relationship um, yeah. uh, until Leo kind of, he can see the forest for the trees. Rosemary right. doesn't want to see the forest for the trees. That's right. That's right. And Billy is a fantastic actor it, and a good friend of mine. I actually wrote this for Billy. He was in the play. Oh. I did it as Leo. And it's uh, it was really cool to be able to bring aspects of our real-life friendship into the movie. And while it's certainly not autobiographical and we're not those characters, you know, that real friendship and dynamic certainly um, ends up on the screen, I think. And he's phenomenal. Oh, it's like the two of you have known each other forever when you were on screen together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The opening the opening scene where it's like you go to his house and you're looking and you've yeah. got all the a commune of hippies there, essentially. And you don't know where's Leo, where's Leo. And then when he finally shows up, it's like no time has ever passed between the two of you as as you guys just jump right in and yeah that's how that's how our friendship goes because you know he splits his time between chicago and la so there's a moment of reality with that where you know we sometimes don't see each other for a bit but then when we're together it's just you, you just we're right back always and where we started and of course and i and i love i mean right after they reconnect it's rosemary gets drug along to a bar mitzvah because he yeah. is the best bar mitzvah DJ on the West Side. Um, <laughs> and the way you wrote that, it was such a nice nod to The Wedding Singer. Um, yes, I love that movie. I, it, the minute I saw that, it was like, oh. And so that was really sweet to see that. But then I also thought at that moment, about the difference in visual tone between the, the the two scenes between Wedding Singer and between what you did with Limerence, and yes, you you've got the vibrant blues and purples going all through the bar mitzvah scene. So there is so much yes. creativity and energy happening. Um, it, it really stands out, and it really helps define, you know, Leo and his hot pink glasses and you know yeah and rosemary and then you've got the straight lace tom enter the picture yes and you know the whole setup there so nicely done and then you ultimately Thank bring you. in jennifer lafleur and evan arnold I How didn't, good are those? Yeah. oh my god and the fact that you wrote <laughs> this as rosemary and tom are maybe embarking on a relationship, maybe not, depending what is what's in Rosemary's head. Um, the two of them look like everything is fine and wonderful, but inside 
they're imploding. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, something you see sometimes with couples, and you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. And that's something that you really address here in the film. You You tacitly address it, be it Rosemary in what she's doing, what is really going on in her head. Here's her outward appearance. Her limerence, her infatuation with life, her possible just infatuation with Tom and infatuation or friendship with Leo. And then what's going on with May and Donald, who on the outside seem the perfect couple. Um, Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the questions I always have about May and Donald is, was the beginning of their, what did the beginning of their relationship look like? Was it, you know, passionate and all-consuming the way Rosemary and Tom sort of, you know, meet and there's immediate chemistry? And I think I don't answer a lot of these questions. Mm-hmm. I ask them and I hope they get people to think about their own relationships and, and life. Well, something you do, you've got that beautiful monologue in there that Jennifer delivers. Oh, yeah. When you're all sitting around a campfire and it's like, okay, so what if Donald were dead? What if you never met? What if Donald were dead? What if Donald were dead and gone? (laughs) And just the way, and the way you deliver that is just so matter of fact. It's like, okay, no, we just, just pretend. And then that, that leads her to give one of the most heartfelt and honest monologues about her inner self, a, a person's inner self. So beautifully done. And you just let the camera rest. You took out the ambient sounds. And mm-hmm. you really focused Very quiet. just on May and Donald. And it's yeah, a I beautiful think... scene. Beautiful, Tammy. Thank you. I, thank you. It's... Uh... One of my favorite pieces of writing in the movie and Jennifer, um, I remember when, because Jennifer auditioned for this movie and she did the monologue in her audition and I said, this is the woman, this is her. Um, she, you know, you need an actor that can do that to be able to be so quiet and still and, and she really, really does that. And um, yeah, I just, I'm so, I'm so grateful that I got to meet her and work with her and have her and and she's funny and awesome and great at karaoke too which is also important that doesn't happen in this movie (laughs) no I I was gonna say it's good to know no you know we have a DJ and a bar mitzvah but uh (laughs) you know no no karaoke involved I can just I I can that's that that's the next movie this will be the sequel (laughs) the sequel to see where everybody goes but and that's and you also you address this too. You leave the film open ended um, to a large degree, but filled but filled with positivity, hope, and happiness. And I mean, I think that's how a movie should end. I don't. I hate when I see a movie and I want to go kill myself afterwards. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but again, I, I think. I hope people ask questions afterwards. You know, I, I think there's a lot of value in not wrapping everything up perfectly and just and letting you wonder and think about it. And people have seen the movie have come away with different perspectives and different 
ideas and answers. And to me, that's the, and if it starts a conversation, I feel like I did my job. Well, I, I want, what I came away with is I want Monique's limerence painting. <laughs> I want the limerence painting. Brad Science owns it. It's in his, it's in his house. So oh my there you God. go. Oh. Uh, it was created for the movie and that's where it lives. So it's, it's a pretty incredible painting. It looks incredible. Now, I would be remiss to not ask you about the music in the film, your score, yeah. and then your needle yeah. drops. Your soundtrack yeah. is so wonderful. Thank you. And the music you. is key with this film. It's got to fit Rosemary's personality and the tone of the film. It, I agree. The music was a big uh, part of it, and... We, so Daniel Bellardinelli is our composer. He's brilliant and funny and nice, too. And he spent a, uh, a couple of weeks coming up with sort of the core sounds and melodies of the movie. And he actually did the score for um, Lamb, which Jennifer was in and mm-hmm. producer on, and her husband, Ross Partridge, directed and is in. That's how we found our composer. He's fabulous. Oh. And the music, we had um, music supervisor Maggie Phillips, who worked with us. She's done a ton of things. She's amazing. And a lot of the um, musicians and, compo- and people who did our music were also friends of mine um, and friends uh, through Drama 3-4, which is a company who did our trailer and worked with us on some of the posts. So we tried to work with as many people as we knew mm-hmm. and it's uh, I love discovering new artists and introducing people to musicians. Maybe they don't know yet. I, I love that in a movie when I'm like, Oh, I don't know that. Song. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was a big part of it. And it was really fun for me because I'm a musical theater gal. So I like learning all sorts of new music. I, I it was definitely an education. Well, and I'm so glad I have the press notes so that I can actually go and now research all of the and find the works of all of these artists that you have their music in oh, the film amazing. because I just I love some of these tracks are fabulous. Yeah, uh, they're they're really, really cool musicians. So unfortunately, we are almost out of time for today, but before I let you go, Tammy, I have to ask you First writing, directing gig, writing, directing, and acting. What did you learn about yourself in the making of Limerence that you can now take forward into your future films? Be they as a director, a writer, or an actor. Well, I think, um, one, I can do really hard things because this is... I can do more than I think is possible. Um, and I think that one of the big takeaways was um, you got to hire the right people and be nice to them. Somebody gave me that advice as a director. And it's funny, but it's also true. Finding the right collaborators is key. Finding people who see your vision and who want to put their heart and soul into it with you is it's the only way, whether they're an actor, they're uh, a producer, they're part of the camera department, they're a PA, 
whatever it is that they're doing, you have to work with people who are into it. It's the, it's the only way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm continuing to write and working on a show with Brad. That's up next. And lots of, lots of fun stuff in the future. Well, I can't wait to see more from you, Tammy. Um, Thank you. This is a wonderful directorial debut, I got to tell you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. As I said, everybody, it's the start of a new year, a new decade. You want to feel good in the midst of all the turmoil that's happening this week? Yeah, I mean. (laughs) As we went on the air today, it was just announced that Harvey Weinstein has now been charged with criminal charges in L.A. for rape and some other things. So, oh my goodness. So we've got, and, and his trial, you know, he had a pretrial in New York this morning. And then we have wow, right. potential war and impeachment. And yeah. we need something happy. This is happy. If you want a break, <laughs> limerence, <laughs> is, limerence is the break for you people. <laughs> and what a, way, what a way to set the tone for the year. Tammy, thank you, thank you thank so you. much. I hope you will come back on the show again. I would love to have you back. Oh, did I want to This has been a joy. Oh, good. And everybody can watch Limerence starting tomorrow on digital That's and VOD. Uh, Tam- it'll be everywhere. You can pre-order today on iTunes still, but tomorrow it'll be everywhere. Uh, well, you know, jump in on those pre-orders. If you don't want to look at any yeah. of the news today, jump in. Jump in on iTunes and pre-order. <laughs> Tammy, I love it. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Tammy Minoff, writer, director, actor. Her directorial and writing debut, Limerence, fabulous. It is, it is a fun film. There, there's fun. There's some froth. It's light. It's bright. And it's what we all can use. And a great way to kick off the year. Uh, And then for some heavier material, go to the theater, Clemency, in theaters now. I believe it opened and limited on December 27th, but it will be expanding over the next couple weeks. Uh, And, of course, 1917, Golden Globe winning, best dramatic film, goes wide everywhere this Friday. I can't encourage you highly enough to see 1917. Uh, that is all the time we have today. We will be back next week. We'll have the Oscar nominations. And Liz Manisil will be joining us talking about her film, Speed of Life. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 